That is a very, very gracious welcome. Thank you so much. It is a joy to be here at Journey to be a part with your Survivor Weekend. Pastor Ken's hospitality and generosity to allow me to be able to share this morning kind of as a wrap-up to the series we were going through was I just really am grateful. Uh, I told the early service that I've known Jono and Heather since Jono was Jonathan. Um, I've known Heather since Heather was actually before she was born. Um, we grew up in the same church. I'm, I'm four or five years older than her older sister, uh, Sean, and uh, so I remember when she was born. I, I remember when Jono, first time I met him, he was uh, going to uh, West Walton Baptist Church, which was down in Walt Grove, and the pastor was a friend of mine, and he actually had no hair on his face and a mullet on his head. So it was, uh, that's how long I've known these guys, and I have just enjoyed being here, seeing their leadership with the students and watching Restoring Grace be lived out as a testimony of their lives. And so I'm just grateful to be here. This is home for me. My parents still live here. My brother, his family uh, are here. So anytime I get to come back to Loganville, even though I've been gone since 1988, it's always a joy for me. So I, I feel very blessed in this. I want you to turn your Bible to John's Gospel, chapter 21. All weekend, we were looking at the life of Peter in a kind of a, a study called, I entitled Redemption's Road. And this started gripping me about eight months ago, kind of the life of Peter, his testimony. And so we had, we had basically three sessions prior to today. In our first session, we looked at the call that Peter and the other disciples had, that first time that Jesus met them and called them uh, to, to be his uh, followers, his disciples. And Matthew, Mark, just summarize it. Follow me, you'll be fishers of men. Luke's gospel, John's is a little more unique, but Luke's gospel is sort of really the most detailed. And that's what we looked at from Luke 5, where Jesus literally takes them out, Peter, out into the deep waters. Let's, they'd been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything. They go out, put down the nets. Great number of fish are caught. And uh, Jesus then says, you know, follow me, you'll be fishers of men. And Saturday morning, we looked at Peter's great confession. Jesus had literally just fed 4,000 plus. Then he took the disciples on about a 25-mile about a hike to the headwaters of the Jordan River where there was multiple temples for worshiping multiple gods. It was sort of the headwaters, the fertility, the, all of that taking place at the beginning of the Jordan River. It was a, and, and Mount Hermes, which was where Moses had gave the second telling of the law, Deuteronomy. And so you had the background of, of the law for the Jews right there. You had the headwaters of the Jordan where all this pluralism of, of multiples, of three major temples, all this pluralistic God worship. And it was at that point Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? And Peter make that, made that great confession, you're the Christ. And then last night we looked at you know, for all of Peter's stumblings and bumblings and failures, his greatest was when he denied Jesus three times. Even though Jesus already told him he would do so when he denied him. And we looked in Luke's gospel and, and there's that moment where when the rooster crows that it says Luke records for us the details that Jesus looked at Peter, their eyes met and it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. And you can only imagine that kind of scenario. And, and look, let's be very honest with you. And I've been a follower of the Lord Jesus since October of 1983. I've had those moments when the penetrating grace of the Holy Spirit in my life has left me in bitterness of tears because of the choices that I'd made. The sin, sinning against God and against my brothers and sisters. Um, I think we've, we've all been there. We would go through that. And um, 
to, to be able to look at John's gospel, chapter 21, which is, is really unique because John had finished his gospel. We, we, we break it down into chapters and verses, but John had finished his biography of Jesus. Chapter 20 for us, that it comes to the end. He'd given the Great Commission from John. But somewhere, maybe after even some circulation, and I'm convinced it was the Apostle John who wrote the, the final words. Chapter for us, 21, got added in. And it's a story that specifically relates to Peter. And I think it became very important for the church to recognize God's redemptive plan in restoring grace in Peter's life. And so John records for us a story that's unique to his gospel. And it's in that that I want us to, to dive into. I'm going to do it a little bit different. The verses I gave the guys, and I've thrown the AV guys a lot of curves this weekend, and I thank the Lord for them. They've been so generous, and they've, they've acquiesced to so many different things that I've asked um, they'll, they're going to put up the scripture from the front part. What I want to do in this service is I want to read the section that is the dialogue between Peter and Jesus. And then what I'll do is, even though that passage will be up there, I want to go back and I'll just walk through that as the background. So let's, this morning, John 21, let's read verses 15 through 19. When they, meaning the disciples, there's going to be a total of seven of them, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Would you pray with me, please? Daddy, I thank you for the grace that you have given us in Christ Jesus. For the hope of restoration that comes not based on our performance, by the work of the cross. That Lord Jesus you work graciously to redeem us through your blood. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are at work among and that you stir our hearts to sing truth and that you, you, you work on those who are yet to be a part of the faith family. And Lord, you draw and woo and bring and grant faith that we might believe. So God, we pray that you would work so intimately within our hearts today through your word that you would guard my mouth, my mind, and my tongue to say only that which would exalt you, Lord Jesus, and really be beneficial to these who have gathered here today. For we pray this, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. When you uh, look at this, this dialogue, you've got to kind of understand the background, what's going on. In that calling that Jesus gave to his disciples when he said, come follow me, it was implicit that what he was telling them to do is, you're leaving behind what you have known as a livelihood in, in the fishing industry. 
Okay, this is, this is how they lived. And in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, what's really amazing about that is, in that calling, these guys had been out fishing all night and they had caught nothing. Jesus takes them out in the middle of the day when there's, they're exhausted. I mean, they're, they're like these guys who've been up for hours upon hours from Survivor Weekend. These guys had fished all night. They're disappointed. There was no catch. That meant, I mean, that, that wasn't just like a journey trip. I mean, a, uh, you know, a, a, a fishing joy kind of trip. This is their livelihood depended on that. Jesus takes them back out when the fishing is not the best time. They're exhausted. They've already cleaned the nets and put them away. Get everything back out, dirty the nets again throw them out into the deep, and they do so. And they catch the largest catch they had ever had up to that point in time. Now, they come in with the greatest haul, and, and, and the greatest profit that they've ever experienced. And at that moment of their greatest, if you would, celebration in the industry and the livelihood of their work life, Jesus says, come follow me. I'm making you a fisher of men from now on. Okay, so, so now they, for three and a half years or so, three plus years, they have followed Jesus. They've trusted and relied upon him for their provision. They have confessed him as the Messiah. Huge deal. Okay, they have seen him crucified. Then they have seen him twice since the resurrection. You remember Peter and John had gone to the tomb. They saw the empty tomb. Twice they have seen him since the resurrection, they've seen his resurrected body in Jerusalem. The last words Jesus had given his disciples in the upper room were, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the sending of the Spirit. Now that was to come at Pentecost, and there was a reason for that. If you, in, the, in the Old Testament, it just makes sense. As the imagery of the Old Testament it becomes reality in the New Testament, Christ, and the sending of the Spirit. So Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem. Just wait. Be patient. They got impatient. They left. At some point, they trekked all the way back up to Galilee. That was a several-day journey. They get back up to Galilee, and at some point, Peter says to those six other disciples who had followed him back up there, I'm going fishing. Again, it didn't mean I'm going out on a charter fishing trip for fun. He literally was saying, I'm going back to the way of life before we ever met Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm reversing course. Going back to what he used to do. It was an amazing run. There was a lot of joy in it. We saw some, a lot of good things. But I'm going back to what I used to know. Now, all of a sudden, they fished all night. Caught nothing. Darkness is turning to light. Someone on the shore hollers out to them. He calls them my children. It's just a very affectionate term. It wasn't yet, hey you, it was, a, it was a greeting if you would. And he speaks to me, he says, have you caught, my children, have you caught anything? They yell back, no. Throw your net to the right side of the boat. Now I'll guarantee you at that moment, John is kind of clued in on what's going on. And what we know is the resurrected Jesus, whether he intentionally sometimes did not reveal his fullness to where they completely knew he was upon sight, we don't really know, like the road to Emmaus, two of his disciples, they, didn't, they did not realize they were walking with Jesus until he opened their eyes, even though their hearts burned from him speaking his words. So they, they, don't, they don't know if it's just the light of morning, but they don't, they don't completely recognize that it's the risen Christ on the shore speaking to them. They cast the net, they pull in the now largest catch. It even beats Luke's five catch, okay? So it's this great amount of fish. John says to Peter, I believe it's the Lord. 
Peter throws on his outer garment, jumps into the water. I mean, this man is desperate to get to Jesus. He's swimming as hard as he can. The boats row in, pulling the fish at about the same pace. They all get there. Peter's soaking wet, you know, comes out soaking wet. Here's Jesus, got a fire going. He's cooking bread. He says, bring some fish over. They clean the fish. They put them on the fire. They cook them. And it tells us that they had breakfast. They have a meal together. This is a very intimate moment, right? We often breakfast for us, right? It's, it's how fast can we get out the door and get to, the, you know, to school or to work or something. This was just a time of sitting down. We don't have to be anywhere. Let's just talk. And there's this intimacy of fellowship. Well, breakfast is done. And that's where we pick up with the verses that we just read. At some point, again, based upon the verse 20, where it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. At some point after breakfast, Jesus looks at Peter and says, let you and I go for a little walk. Now, Peter was so excited to see Jesus that he jumped into the water to swim to get to him quickly. Okay, so we know he wanted to see him. But I'm betting when Jesus said, let's go for a little walk, Peter wasn't real happy. Because the last words Jesus had told him before fixing breakfast was, stay in Jerusalem and wait. You ever been been caught where you shouldn't have been? You know what I'm saying? This is a moment. And in that moment, I imagine that Peter... Probably wasn't really looking forward to this little, it was an old song we used to sing. Yeah, we'll have a little walk with Jesus. Yeah, he, yeah, he wasn't looking forward to this one. And so somewhere they start walking, right? John's following. And they're walking. And there's a point where all of a sudden they stop. And Jesus, he, 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 he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you more than these. Feed my sheep. Now, I, I'm not, I, I don't think, we're not told, but I think as they continue to walk, there's not like filler conversation. I imagine there's probably just silence. And they walk a little further, and they stop. And Jesus looks at him and says, Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Before Peter denied Jesus three times in Luke's gospel, it tells us that Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you. He demands to sift you like wheat. In other words, he's going he's gonna to press you and try you. And then Jesus says, but I prayed for you, Peter. And when you return to me, in other words, he knew because he's God. When you fall, and you will, when you deny me, when you blow it, he's going to sift you. But when you return to me, strengthen your brothers. That was some of the last words Jesus said to Peter prior to going to the cross. So, they walk a little longer. I'm assuming in silence. Till we stop, and a third time, Peter looks Jesus looks at Peter, and, and, and this, again, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting, but I, I don't think I'd probably be too far off in this. Whenever, when my children were young, growing up, and I needed to correct them, there was two things that I always wanted, them, wanted to happen. Number one, I would always say, because I wanted them to know, 
Daddy is not mad at you. Daddy's not angry at you. Second, I always wanted them to look me eyeball to eyeball. You see, I, I didn't just want external works of good. I wanted to get to their heart. And when you have a conversation with someone, and you look them eyeball to eyeball, you, you, you get past the exterior and you get to the heart. I, I think, I know Peter denied Jesus three times. I know Jesus asked him three times if you love me. I don't want to deny the reality that it was three and three, but I don't think that's the significance of like each time it was restoring him for something he had, you know, his denial. Because that's not the way grace works. I think that it was, if it had, had to go 30 times, it was getting to the heart of Peter. And so he says to him, Peter, do you love me more than these? And it was in the third time. Look again at what Peter says. Verse number 19. Um, I'm sorry, verse number uh, 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Guys, it, it, here's what I think is happening. In that moment, that third time, in brokenness. Peter cries out, Lord Jesus, you are God. You know everything. You know that I love you. You know I love you more than anyone else. But Lord, you know I let you down. You know I deserted you at your greatest hour. You know I took an oath and swore that I had never met you. Lord, you know I love you. You know everything about me. You know the depths of my soul, the depths of my longings, everything in me. You know me better than I know me. Of course you know that I love you. But how could you ever use me again based upon what I just did? How could they have confidence in me? You call me Peter Petros, rock. You said upon me you would build your church. How could you ever do any kind of work through me, someone who took an oath and swore that I had never met you? I think Jesus just got to the heart. I wrote something years ago. It's been really, for me, a, a, an ethos of thought. And it's this. Guilt and reward is the motivation we use to change behavior. Grace is the gift God uses to transform our lives. Our culture and society is built upon a, a, a guilt and reward system to change an exterior behavior. God goes to the heart and by grace transforms our lives from the inside out. When we get eyeball to eyeball with Jesus from his word and the Holy Spirit pierces and cuts deep into the flesh with his word, as Hebrews 4.12 says, and uses it to transform our lives. Second thing I want you to see from this text is that restoring grace is, I'm sorry, restoring grace Frees us with the joy to live. In verse 18 and 19, something amazing happens after Jesus gets to the heart of Peter. It's at that point when Peter is broken and says, Lord, you know all things. 
you know that I love you, that then Jesus looks at Peter and says these words. Peter, I want to tell you something, and I'm going to tell it to you, and I'm not going to tell it to anyone else. I'm going to to give you some insight into your life that no one else ever in the history of mankind ever had. And it's this. A day is coming when you will no longer dress yourself. Someone else will dress you. You will no longer lead yourself. Someone else will lead you where you do not want to go. Then the Apostle John writes and says, By this, Jesus indicated to Peter what type of death Peter would have to glorify him. You know what restoring grace does in people's lives? It doesn't give them the ability to exist. It gives them the joy to live. Peter, here's here's my promise I'm going to give you. Another time is coming when you're going to be put to a test and you're going to have the choice to deny me or to acknowledge me. And to acknowledge me will mean great suffering and death. And I want to tell you, when that day comes, know for certain you're going to pass the test. You're not, going to, you're not going to deny me. That type of resurrecting, restoring grace. I, I, wrote, I wrote down that we all know how to function despite our failures, but we learn the joy of relationships when we are restored from our failures. And in that moment, I think Peter knew the joy of restoration. That, okay, God, you have graciously told me That the future holds my opportunity to have a testimony whereby acknowledging you, I might suffer for your glory. Yeah, even in suffering, Peter understood at that moment what joy it would be to live. There's one final thought that I want to look at, and and that's this. Restoring grace is rooted in one hope. The resurrection of Jesus. Go back to verse number 1. Chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. The very end of that would be, this was the third time that he has revealed himself. Twice in Jerusalem, now here at Galilee. John was making a point. It is the resurrected Christ who has come to tell us. It is the Christ who was crucified and rose again. This is the Christ who conquered death, hell, and the grave. This is the Christ who who is the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Restorer. This Christ appeared to them again for the third time to institute this. You see, our hope, brothers and sisters, our hope, men and women, our hope, friends, is not in our ability to perform, but in the resurrected Christ who has already triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. Our, our confidence knowing that the grace we live in is unshakable, that neither height nor depth or anything above or below could separate us from the love of Christ isn't in our ability to perform, but is in rooted in Christ's resurrection hope that brings grace into our life to redeem and make us into the people He's called us to be. It is rooted in resurrection hope. Listen, there's power in the resurrection of Christ. 
Hey, look, when so, the greatest miracle that ever happens is not when God heals someone of cancer. It is not even when Christ raised people from the dead. The greatest testimony of power is that when God takes people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and makes them alive in Christ Jesus. And that's what he does in our hearts. And that type of grace gives us the, the, the ability to be able to live out hope and it's rooted in Christ and his resurrection. Pastor Ken mentioned to you that we had the privilege of going, uh, my family, uh, wife, three children, to Iceland. We lived there. I, I, probably for the amount of travel I've spent, our, I was pastoring a church in Northern Virginia. We had started multiple churches throughout Northern Virginia, and it was our team of churches that saw the need in Iceland where there's been, there's been very little missional involvement, uh, very small country of about 330,000. Um, the, the northernmost capital of the world is Reykjavik, Iceland. And uh, there, we had no connection to Iceland. The only thing I knew about Iceland was what I learned in school, that Iceland was green and Greenland was ice. Uh, and, you know, and that's, that's all I knew. And, uh, but, but God put that on our hearts. And for five years, we'd talk about it as a church and, and the churches we would plant it. And um, uh, most of the time, we just got called crazy. I had a lot of military guys in the church. Several of them said, we lived there, you know, because we had a base there at one time. And uh, it's cold. It's barren. Yes, it, beautiful but very, very spiritually dead. Well, we felt like God was calling our churches to, to, to go, and we started what was called the Iceland Project, and uh, we, we went over believing that God had called us to, to see a church that was planted that by God's grace and for His glory would be Icelandic, and it would be true to the Scriptures, honoring of the gospel, but it was it reached people. It would also want to multiply itself. It would want to, to, to start new churches. And um, we thought it would happen in one year. It took... It took Eight, almost nine, but I'll never forget. We got to be living in country when we saw the birth of Lostopen and uh, and to see this church come out and see what God has done in the last five years in the life of that fellowship has just been amazing. And in actually about eighteen months, they're looking to plant their first church. I mean, so it's been just an amazing testimony of God's grace. Well, while we lived in Iceland, I mean, listen, uh, when, uh, when, to take your thirteen, ten, and two. Now the two-year-old didn't mind as long as she was close to mama, she was happy. But the only, the, my older kids, 13 and 10, the only place they'd ever known was northern Virginia. That's where they'd grown up. So it was really hard for them to move. And the, it, we, we enrolled into Icelandic schools, just our neighborhood school. And uh, so they're getting math in Icelandic. They're getting Icelandic history. You know, they, they get, even get English in Icelandic. I mean, you know, so when the teacher explained things, explained it in Icelandic. So it was, it was a challenge, okay? Uh, they were in neck deep. And I want to tell you, in those two years that they were in school, God changed everything. I mean, look, look as tough as it was to leave, when, when, when we were about to get on the plane to come back home, I looked at those two older, my oldest two, Cammie and Ben, I said, what's, what's harder, remembering back what it was like when we came over or now leaving? And both of them, in tears, said, leaving to go back. I mean, we just, God, I mean, th those people welcomed us, adopted us in, loved us took us in, and we became a part of the community. And it was just amazing to see God's goodness in that to us. So Iceland, is, it's, 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 it's home for us, Haima. It's, it's something special. So I want to do something, if you would. I want to teach you two Icelandic words, and then we'll show you a video, if that's okay. Um, the, the, the Icelandic words are all from Iceland, okay? Now, if you were in the early service and you know the answer to this, don't shout out. But uh, would, you, would you say, all from Iceland? Very good. One more time. Alfram? Eastland. 
perfect. Perfect Icelandic. There you go. You got an A on your first Icelandic quiz. All right. Now, what do you think that means? Shout it out. I can't hear. Anybody? Well, it means let's go Iceland. Let's go Iceland. Now, that became very important because I want to tell you something. I fell in love with soccer in Iceland. If I say football, it's just because I lived in Europe for a little bit, okay? I fell in love with soccer in Iceland. Um, I, I love, I, I've got an English premier team that I follow, Arsenal. Um, they're playing at 1230 today, so we will be home by then. So anyway, I just, you know, there's this, I, I just love soccer. Basically. I also fell in love with the Icelandic national team. And last year, they made it to the World Cup. So when America didn't, I, was, I had a team that I could root for. We didn't do so great. But, but we, were the, we were the smallest country to have ever made it to the World Cup. But in 2016, we did something, and it was, the, it was the biggest thing in sporting history at that time with regards to soccer globally. In 2016, we made it into the Euros. Now, the Euros are the second biggest tournament that's played um, in soccer. It happens every four years, opposite two years of the World Cup. Over 100-and-something countries compete to get down to the 32 um, that go to the knockout. Uh, to, the, to the 64 that make it to the knockout stage. No, it's 32. So, um, so what happens is you have for two years t- throughout Europe teams playing each other to qualify to be in those 32. And for the first time ever in Iceland's history, the smallest country ever to make it into the Europe, Iceland qualified. I was in country when that happened. Huge celebrations. It was amazing. Now, we didn't win the Euros, but we were never picked to get out of our qualifying round. We got out of the qualifying round tied in a first second. The top two teams would advance. And then we played mighty England in the first round. I mean, listen, England had one player on their team that made more than all the salaries of the Icelander club's uh, players together. Uh, There was only three professional soccer players for the Icelandic team. All the other players played local clubs in Iceland, just little little local clubs. The coach for England made over $5 million a year. All he did was focus on the national team. Iceland's coach was a dentist. I mean, that's what he did. He did root canals, okay? So we're playing mighty England in this first elimination round, and we beat them two to one. It was the most amazing thing. Oh, my gosh, man, we were celebrating. It was off the charts. The English coach resigned the day after. It was amazing. The, the, uh, the uh, Icelandic coast rearranged his dental schedule and put root canals off. So it was just one of those things. It was great. Well, we lost the next round to France, eventual winners. The, the Icelandic team rolls back home, and I want to show you a one-minute video to the welcome celebration they got back. It's called the Icelandic Chant. It's, they've been doing it for hundreds of years, but it became prolific in the football match. And by the way, the game they lost, over 30,000 Icelanders flew to France to watch the game that they lost. That would be like 30 million Americans flying to Mexico City to watch a match. Over 10% of the population went. Watch the welcome back.
Okay, let's just be honest. That's pretty cool, right? It was over 20,000 people gathered in the square. I mean, they don't, they don't know the exact count, but it was massive. Now, look, I'm close with this. You can look at that and go, that's cool. You said the words correctly, Al from Eastland. You got them spot on. But let me promise you something. That will never move you the way it moves me. When I say those words, Al from Eastland, you say, may say them just as correctly, but you will never mean them the way I mean them. Do you know why? Because they adopted me and made me a part of their family. When we were strangers, they welcomed us in. My family became their family, and their family mine. So it is as a child of God. You can either sing these words from your lips, or you can echo them from your heart when we speak of grace. And that's based upon the relationship that in Christ, you can say, Abba, Father, and know that you are His because of what He has done in bringing you to faith in Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your kindness and mercy to us. Uh, Lord, that our hope is rooted in you and not our performance. And that, Lord, that you are so kind to us in your mercy. It's new each day. Lord, would you bless this fellowship? Would you, would you for any, anyone who's here this morning, Lord, and they've never put their faith and trust in you, Lord, would you stir in their heart a desire for redemption, restoration to be born again this morning. Lord, let them not leave without coming to talk with Pastor Kenner, someone to, to share their desire to know you. Lord, thank you for your graciousness and your kindness again to us. In Christ Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.